Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald. You don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Look how much... African-American communities have suffered under democratic control. To those I say the following. What do you have to lose by trying something new like Trump? What do you have to lose? There's not much debate about this. Donald Trump's recent overtures to black America have been clumsy at best and insulting at worst. That speech you just heard, it was addressed to black voters, but it was delivered to an almost entirely white audience in Michigan. I say it again, what do you have to lose? Look, what do you have to lose? You're living in poverty, your schools are no good, you have no jobs, 58% of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? And at the end of four years, I guarantee you that I will get over 95% of the African-American vote. I promise you. The question is not whether Donald Trump has a black voter problem. He does. Most polls show him with about 1% of the black vote. It's whether the Republican Party is ready to have an honest conversation about race. And it's whether the Democratic Party deserves to have the 95% support it's somehow garnered. The Republican Party's relationship to black voters wasn't always this bad. That's where we'll start, with Tara Wall. She's overseen black outreach for Republican presidential candidates since the election of George W. Bush in 2000. Tara, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. So let's start with a, a blunt question about where Donald Trump stands in his relationship with black voters in this country. Is it strategically worth his time at this point in the race to really pursue this voter? Well, I think it, it would have been had he made it, uh, a commitment early on. I think it was clear early on in the campaign, at least when I talked to him, I had interviewed him early on in the campaign, and it was clear that they were focused on the lower-class, white, suburban, in some cases, voters. They weren't focused on or weren't planning on really doing any significant outreach to black voters. Obviously, I think that's changed in the last couple of weeks because of the narrative that's been out there. I think that um, had he laid the groundwork earlier, he might be a little further down the road. There have been Republicans who have been successful with black voters. President Bush was among them. You don't need 50 percent of the black vote, which is 
you know, really disingenuous in his part when he says, I'm going to have 95% of the black vote in four years. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. It's hyperbole. If Republicans were to get consistently in double digits with black voters, then Democrats would never win another national election. Wow. So Bush, in his first year, he got 8% of the black vote, um, and that went up to 11% when he ran for re-election. So he did um, generally pretty well with black voters. You worked on that campaign, both of them. What was he doing? Who was he meeting with? What were the messages, and why was it working to connect him to the black voter in the country? We went into communities across the country, urban communities. We set up the office in Detroit, in the city, you know, where— um, it was nothing but um, bringing in, you know, surrogates like Condoleezza Rice and others, bringing in, um, you know, the principal himself, George W. Bush, sitting him down with the leaders, whether they agreed with him or not, um, in these communities to come together to rally, either rally together, find out what the concerns were, find out what their issues are, talk about what his platforms were, talk about what his policies were. Some of them did come out endorsing him, others with a better understanding and a, actually a healthy respect for him, whether they were going to vote for him or not. We launched what was called an economic empowerment tour. We went city to city in places like Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania. The groundwork, the ground game, I can't say enough about that. that that's a foundation that has to be laid months and months out, and people that are out there doing it day in, day out, getting that message out and hitting those messages home. I think it is some sense, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn for, for, for Trump at this point with many black voters. Will there be a few stragglers? Probably. But, number one, the debates are going to be very telling, and that will tell a lot. But, number two, I think just so much of the damage has already been done. Can I ask you, I, I want to just ask you about the RNC where you worked for just a minute. You, you left the Republican National Committee, and I'm interested in, in why you did that. And I'm interested in whether it is difficult to be an African-American in the Republican Party at this moment with Trump as the nominee. And I don't know that those two things were connected, so I'm interested in, in why you left the party. Yes. I mean, I would say it is difficult. It's difficult for a lot of reasons, which I don't want to get into. But I, I will say it is difficult. It's a, it's a different time, but sometimes you have to, you know, you have to kind of take a break and sit back and, and rethink, you know, what impact we're having individually as people in life and what our motivations are. And everybody has to examine what those are or why they get involved in politics or stay in politics. When you met with Donald Trump's campaign and even considered working for him, did you feel that they had any compelling vision for how to reach black voters when you talk to no. them? No. Well, that's like I said before, no. I don't, I, you know, it was made clear to me that that wasn't their focus and that there wasn't a vision or a plan in that regard. Um, and, and it was, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it was unfortunate. And maybe that was because it was a primary, but it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter that it's just a primary. I think that has to be something that is uh, on your plate. And it was enough so that you must have not felt you wanted to work there. Well, I know what you're getting at. And like I said, I'm not going to feed into that narrative. <laughs> but you didn't take a job with the campaign. Uh, well, I like I said, I don't, I'm not going to, I just don't want to go down that road. Tara, can you envision a foreseeable future where the Republican nominee wins 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe even 20 percent of the black vote. Is that something? Yeah, I think with the right candidate, yes. I, I do envision that. It's been done before. I mean, I'm sure it'll happen again. But it won't happen this time. I'm not optimistic that it will happen this time. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 
25. NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com NYT. That's netsuite.com NYT. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Remember when Donald Trump asked what black voters had to lose? More colorfully than that? He might be a deeply imperfect messenger, but he does have a message for African-American voters. He's saying Democrats have let you down. They've taken you for granted. You don't really owe them your vote. Is he right? I want to talk about that and about the politics of race in 2016, with two people who have explored the subject throughout this election and their careers. Charles Blow, he's a columnist at The Times, and Yamish Alcinder, she's a campaign reporter at the paper. Charles and Yamish, thank you for joining us. Thanks Happy to be here. for having me. So I want to get us out of this tactical question of whether Trump is doing a good job of reaching out to black voters, because the answer would seem to be he is not. I want to instead ask, is there any truth to Trump's critique of a Democratic Party for having not done enough for black American voters? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because I think even the premise of that is slightly off. I mean, I think, you know, Baldwin wrote about this a while ago, about, I think probably in the 60s, about how politicians in general have taken the black vote for granted. And so the implication in that question is that Democrats are at fault for doing it, and that Republicans would not. However, I think the bigger issue is that the politics of America has not necessarily valued the black population in the way that it should have. And so the black electorate in response has had to make choices about of the two parties you have, which can you support? Is it the party that a hundred years ago, virtually every black person in America, those who could vote and those even who couldn't, align with the Republican Party. And that party, they didn't leave that party. That party left them. That party said, basically, during the Southern strategy, that they no longer cared about the black vote. They cared about the people who hated black people. You know, the, the, the strategy was that the more Blacks who fled to the Democratic Party, the more the white Negrophobes in the South would come to the Republican Party. And so if you look at that through a historical lens, Black people have a lot of reason to be apprehensive about a party 
to which they had given their allegiance that then turned on them, that is not to say that you're turning to a perfect choice. You're just turning to a choice where people are at least using the language of empathy, where people are at least using, you know, kind of the levers of power to ameliorate the effects of white supremacy, if not dismantling the white supremacy itself. I mean, the fundamental problem is the white supremacy. It is the systemic racism. And one party chooses to at least recognize it. The other party says it doesn't even exist, and therefore their policy prescripts do not acknowledge that existence and therefore say basically the rising tide will lift all boats and therefore that will help you. Well, I'll, to jump in there really quickly, I should just say this. As someone who covered Bernie Sanders and spent a lot of time on the trail going and talking to African-Americans that were supporting Bernie Sanders, there were people there that remember very clearly Hillary Clinton calling African-American, young African-American men, even at least referring to them as super predators. There are people that remember just a few months ago, Bill Clinton wagging his finger at protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement saying, well, what would you have wanted me to do? And really kind of in some ways, really offensively to some people saying, you know, I know what's best for you and I knew it was best for you then and I know what's best for you now. So I think there there are people that do feel just tanked for granted um, by the Democratic Party. In, in my conversations, there are people that I think are somewhat high profile. You have someone like Nina Turner, who was one of the leading black um, surrogates for Bernie Sanders, saying the Democratic Party has taken me for granted. I'm a rogue Democrat, as she calls herself. She It's true that she has nowhere to go. She's not going to go become a Republican. Most African-Americans that I talk to very clearly understand that third party politics is not something that they can get behind. But at the same time, I, I think that it, it would be it would be wrong to say that there aren't people that are deeply frustrated by the Democratic Party, especially with young African-Americans that I've talked to on the trail who talk about the fact that Black Lives Matter was birthed under a Democratic president, our first African-American president. And it showed them that even if President Obama had really good intentions, and even if the Clintons had really good intentions, that they're dealing with the systemic racism that goes so deep that it includes the two leading parties. So I think in that way, what Trump is saying, and it's so flawed, and the way that he's saying it is so offensive to most, so many people, what, what the hell do you have to lose? I mean, that's so offensive. But this idea that you had a place like Chicago and Rahm Emanuel with, and, and someone like Laquan McDonald, who was shot by police, and then that video didn't come out for so long, people were calling for his ouster. And that was a Democratic you know, mayor that is very closely tied to President Obama and Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would just frame it as, you know, one party kind of approaches you with a philosophy of pain and the other approaches you with a philosophy of pity. And most black people, I would venture, don't want either. And you have to choose whether or not, you know, I think Bill Maher once said this, well, that, you know, you don't always agree with what Bill Maher says, but, but he, <laughs> he said that, you know, there is the friend who disappoints you and the enemy who wants to destroy you. And at a certain point, you have to make a choice. And I'm not saying necessarily that the Republican Party wants to destroy, but I do believe that once you start to deny the existence of systemic racism, you have then allowed it to fester and persist. And that is a path to destruction, whether or not you are actively courting that destruction or not. 
Yeah, and, and to think about that, um, Democrats that I've talked to, I should say young African-American Democrats that I talked to, really push back at this idea that the Republican Party is somehow colorblind. That term is used a lot, at least when I interview Republicans, they say, you know, I don't see color and we're in a post-racial society. That is nothing more frustrating to African-Americans. Donald Trump is supposed to, at, on Saturday, go to his first African-American event in, a, in an African-American community. It's going to be September 2016. Um, he would have had his campaign for more than a year. Hillary Clinton has not just been going to black churches or going to these spaces. She's really embedded herself in the African-American community and has in some ways publicly apologized to the community. So I think she's at least said, hey, you know what, I did get some things wrong. Right. And, and, and I don't want us to drift anywhere near kind of false equivalency between Democrats and Republicans in terms of, you know, pox on both their houses. I mean, there is active efforts across this country right now to institute kind of voter restrictions that will, everyone knows the net effect of them will be disproportionate impact on poor people and minorities and particular black people. There is just no, there's no doubt about that. And those are, for the most part, Republican legislatures doing that in the wake of the gutting of the Voter Rights Act. That's an active thing. So this is not simply like, oh, in theory, my policies, my economic policies may benefit you more than, you know, this, the other guy's economic policies will benefit you. This is like a direct attack on you to strip you of a right that a lot of blood had, was shed for you to have. So the idea that we can have kind of an argument that says, you know, have Dems been perfect? Of course they haven't. But there are like actual attacks on individual people of color in this country. And a lot of that comes directly from Republicans. That was not just black people, that's Hispanic people with the, you know, that rash of show your papers laws that were sweeping across the South, the anti-Sharia laws. I mean, like they're not the same thing. They're not equally weighted. And so we can't say that because you know, we don't have perfect politicians that they're of equal kind of affronts to us. That's just not the case. You mean what you seem to be suggesting there, and I and I hear this from you, Charles, as well, is that these party affiliations are not permanent structures, and there could be a populist version of Donald Trump that did find a way to appeal to a black voter. What would that look like? I mean, I think for the people that I've talked to on the trail and having also covered Black Lives Matter for several years now, I think that someone with a message that really first acknowledges that we're, we're living in a society where African-Americans are not as valued, I think and to say that out loud and to say that over and over again, um, I think would, would be a message that resonates with African-American people because most African-American people know that, that the Constitution was, was made without you being a human being. And to know that um, and to have someone that really acknowledges that and then somehow comes up with policies that really say this is to combat systemic racism and to say that word and to say it over again and say it in, in, in debates to say it in speeches, to make that part of who you are, and then to understand intersectionality. Um, I think a lot of people that I talked to when they when I talked about Bernie Sanders and covering him, he would always have it in his speeches. Here's the African-American portion. Here's the Latino portion. And I felt like saying, and I, and I think that a lot of people felt like saying, well, you know, there are people that are black and Latino and homosexual. Like that person exists. And I think to understand intersectionality would probably, I think we would get a listen from anybody. I want to ask you both about what has started to look 
like a meaningful effort by Donald Trump and meaningful in the eye of the beholder. But he's re- he's starting to reach out to black voters. He's headed to Detroit. Charles, you have made the case that this is a fraudulent outreach. You've called it actually a form of bigotry. Do you think he's actually speaking now to black voters or he's, is he actually speaking to a different group of voters, namely white voters who want to hear him sound a different set of notes when talking about black voters? Well, I think it is him speaking to voters, which makes the entire enterprise suspect, right? So when he was not necessarily in need of black voters, whether in swing states or it wasn't down to the last parts of the campaign and he was down in the polls, I heard none of this. He's been campaigning, what, 14, 15 months? I heard none of this. I heard none of this throughout the rest of his life, and he has given so many interviews. And throughout his life, so much has happened in the black community where you, as a person who people are interested in, as a public figure, you could weigh in and say, you know, this thing is happening. I really feel strongly that, you know, people are getting a raw deal here, or I feel strongly that I should put my weight behind this or that. That's what you want to see in a life to know that an outreach is sincere. If you wait till the last 70 days and you're 70 years old, what does that say? Now, do you block a person from, you know, wanting to be a better person? Absolutely not. But that's a personal moral decision. I think when you tie it to an absolute need for votes, then it's a callous attempt, whether you're trying to reach the people you're saying or you're trying to reach other people, which I sincerely believe that it is, trying to reach white people and using black people as a way of doing that. But which white voter do you think it speaks to? I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out which. Well, so there's there's two. I think you know it, you, you could argue there are two separate ones, right? One is the people who, on the surface level, says, okay, it sounds like he's not being racist. So, and I don't want to be the person who goes to the racist guy. And now he looks like he's turning a corner on that. And I am conservative. I actually do want a conservative president, and this is a Republican candidate, and I want to vote for him, but I just don't want. You know, when I show up at the PTA or whatever, I don't want to be the person with the people, you know, I can't divulge that I voted for him, you know, right? Some of them are moderate. Some of them are more educated. Some of them live in kind of more integrated environments, and they are kind of torn. On the other hand, there is the kind of uh, racial isolationists, the people who do not have very much contact with black people at all, the people who want to hear this version of what blackness looks like because it is the version that they have in their own heads and that that what they are doing, the way that they are behaving, the way their candidate is behaving is actually something that would be helpful to those people that they have such a low opinion of. How do you pitch to black people an image of themselves, a reflection of themselves that is so dark it's almost like it is a uh, additional violence unto itself, the picture that he is painting of blackness in America. So I just, I, I just, I have a hard time seeing it as anything other than what I think it is, which is a very callous ploy to kind of echo to white people what white people may already think of blackness. I'll add to that just briefly as a reporter who was in West Bend, Wisconsin, right before he did that first 
speech about kind of pitching to African-Americans. I spent the day in West Bend talking to people. Um, it's a place that was, I want to say, 95% white, 1% black. So I wanted to talk to people just about what they think about about Donald Trump coming. And one of the, I would say one of my most surprising interviews in my lifetime was this um, retired bricklayer who was talking to me, seemed like a really nice guy. And in the middle of me asking, you know, when was America great again? And, and kind of talking about his ideas of Donald Trump. He said, well, all my friends think I'm racist. And I said, well, why do you think, why do they think that? And he said, well, I think that the black heritage means that you don't, that black people don't want to work as hard. And that before you know it, you have five kids and they don't have fathers. And I remember thinking to myself, Wow, like you're saying this to me, like an African-American working journalist. It was striking. And it told me, well, maybe that's who Donald Trump is talking to. He's telling these people that's saying, you know, you have these thoughts and it's OK. And this and again, this guy, he seemed nice enough. But the fact that he had that idea and he and I think he really believed that it wasn't so it wasn't like he was someone who wouldn't talk to a black girl. He, he stopped. He talked to me for 15 minutes. But it's the idea that deep in his soul, he really believes that African-Americans are people that don't want to work hard and that and that want a government handout. And I think in some ways, Donald Trump is talking to those people and saying that it's OK to think that way. Can I ask you guys both about Hillary Clinton? Because her favorability with black voters is extraordinary. It's higher than pretty much any other group in the electorate. Has she earned that? So I guess because I, again, spent so much time with Bernie Sanders, um, I, that's my point of reference sometimes. Bernie Sanders would say this thing that like would be, you know, people don't know me, so that's why they're not flocking to me. African-Americans don't know me. And, you know, that and I haven't been in their communities as long as Hillary Clinton. But Hillary Clinton, what she has done has really embedded herself in African-American lives. And I think that the voters that the, the voters that, you know, Bernie Sanders thought were ignoring him because they didn't know him. I think they knew who Bernie Sanders were. I think African-Americans that I interviewed, they knew exactly who Bernie Sanders was and they weren't picking him. They were picking Hillary Clinton because even with all her flaws, they felt one, that she respects us, that she understands our culture she under she took the time to go into our communities and we trust her in some ways i think inherently people think about her as a as a young lawyer going into into these communities working as a civil working on civil rights cases and think Hillary Clinton at least gets that African-Americans are not equal and wants to change that. And I think having seen her in person several times in black audiences, I don't know if it's if it's the right thing to say she performs very well, but she understands her audience very, very well. And she she plays to that and she plays to this idea that what, is, what does she do? So like I'll say one like she spoke in front of the um, National Association of Black Journalists. And it's an organization that I'm a part of, and we the, it was founded by journalists several decades ago. And one of the things she did before she even started speaking, she said, "Oh, can you can all the founders stand up and let's give them a round of applause?" And I thought that was someone who at least had a black staffer who pulled you to the side and said, "Look, these people really value their founders, so you should really do this." Um, when she's in an African American church, she is saying, "You know, this isn't my first time here. Remember when I was here in the 1990s? Remember when I was here and I did this?" Um, you know, me and your pastor go back a long way. And that reminds that that tells people this isn't my first time in this building. And by the way, I understand your culture. So no one had to tell me that this is this is when you stand up or this is when you clap or I, I understand what's going on here. But, but in addition, she shows up. Right. I mean, the, the, the one thing that Clinton's learned, particularly Bill, I think probably imparted this to Hillary and they kind of she kind of came into understanding that about Bill when uh, they were in Arkansas, is that it's really important to show up. I, you know, I grew up my, you know, my first few years was in Arkansas. My grandmother lived in Arkansas. A lot of relatives lived in Arkansas. My mother still remembers, like, the first time I met Bill Clinton. He came home with one of the, you know, the, there's a cousin or what a family friend 
who worked in the government. And he lived in this tiny little, you know, mud hole of a place. And Bill came home with him. You know, and my mom talks about it like it's just it was just so casual. But I think that there's a generational and geographic divide in the African American community. There are a lot of, you know, kind of younger people, people more, you know, kind of urban, northern, western, who may not have the same sense of kind of ideas of fealty to the Clintons and also younger people who grew up in the wake of, you know, the welfare reform and the prison bill and saw whole neighborhoods kind of suck dry of young men and kind of point to that and say, you guys are partially responsible for that. There are older people who kind of were adults in the 90s, and there was a lot of panic. You know, there was a lot of panic even among black people. A lot of people made a horrible mistakes supporting that crime bill. Black people supported it in addition to the Clintons. A lot of black mayors, a lot of black preachers, a lot of black community leaders thought that by asking for additional help, police help, that they would rid their communities of criminals and that the regular, vast majorities of regular people who just want to raise their families to go to work and go to school will be able to do that. Turned out that wasn't what happened, right? The use of that bill was distorted in really horrible, wretched ways that had lasting impacts on the black community. So there are young people who look at that and they there is no balance. The only the only thing that they know of them is the effects of what they have done, you know, post nineties. You know, like a lot of you did a lot of these kids are like my my son, my oldest son is born in ninety four. He doesn't know what it was like to live, you know, in the crack epidemic. So earlier in this episode, we turned back the clock to 2004, and that was when George W. Bush did something pretty unusual. He won the support of 11% of African Americans in the country, and what he succeeded at most was identifying black conservatives who were animated by faith and morality, and he reached them through a set of issues like opposition to gay marriage and his faith-based initiative program, No Child Left Behind. Is that voter still out there waiting for a Republican to speak to them, or does that voter exist in smaller and less significant numbers? I think I think that, that, that voter base is constantly shrinking, right? I think that the black population is very much like any other population in America, as you know, the younger part of the population kind of increases its its waiting. Religion recedes as more as more of an animating factor, which I always find very fascinating. Where people always think that going to the black church is how you get the black vote. I think there's a certain kind of black vote. There's my mom will be there, right? So if you go to the black church, you're gonna reach my mom. But when you think about Black Lives Matter movement, first their speeches, first their television appearances, the word God, religion, almost never is mentioned. It is simply not moored in the idea of religion. It is a moral movement that says that there is there is a moral problem that exists in America about the, the desperate treatments of different kinds of people and that we have to address that from a moral standpoint. But it is not a religious pitch. But I do think that a Republican could come in and have a message that has to do with Christian base, especially has to do with the right to life or an, an abortion that could tap into that. Because that, to me, I think those people are still out there. I think I bump into them on the campaign trail, and I think that they're the people who early vote. They're the people who vote consistently. They're the people who then ask their kids to vote, and their kids, maybe half their kids show up. But I think that that could be there. Um, Donald Trump obviously hasn't been doing that. <laughs> Guys, I want to conclude 
with a question about what it's been like for both of you to cover this campaign. And I want to start with a quote from the great Charles Blow. (laughs) You talked in one of your columns, Charles, about how revealing this campaign was of the ugliness that all of us can harbor. And I wonder, as black journalists covering this presidential campaign, what some of that ugliness is that you've experienced if you have, what some of the feedback has looked and felt like, and if it has felt openly racial. Um, I think in my experience, I started covering race when Turbo Martin was killed. So that was several years ago. Um, and even before that, my name is Yamish Alcindor. So I I would say even after 9-11, um, I would get messages because people thought I was a Muslim man. So I think that for so long, and part of my, my, part of my life and part of my career has been having to deal with people calling my phone and saying, you know, I can't believe you were you could write about this 9-11 event because you're a Muslim man and me having to explain to people actually I'm a Haitian woman, but that's still not okay for you to call somebody had I been a Muslim man. And, you know, to me, covering this election, I switched into politics thinking, okay, well, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be different. And it hasn't really been that different. What I should say is I think it's been enlightening to me to have people stand in front of my face and say things. Um, Like I said, that interview in West Bend stuck with me because part of me thought I'm a great journalist because he could open up to me and I could get him to say that black people don't work hard. And then the other part of me said, I can't. How dare he say that to me because I'm a working black woman. Um, So I think think that that kind of stuck with me and I had to talk to my mom about that afterwards and say you know what what is that um but I've you know for so long for my entire career people have had something to say about my name or or, or you know I've had the n-word thrown at me pretty regularly um since I've become a journalist so I think it's something that you develop a very thick skin about um and something that you just say okay well I'm gonna move on because to me there's as someone who's covered Black Lives Matter and realized that people have died and have dealt with so much more I think me then I, I feel like, who am I to complain about a bad email or or an uncomfortable interview right. when I when I'm when there are people who have been shot and are killed um, because of this? Like, so, so how many people didn't get this job at the at the New York Times for decades because they were African American? So how dare I now deal with you know these are the burdens that I must carry? So I, I feel like I'm in a place of privilege and I remind myself that every day. But do, but but I do. I mean, I, would you agree with this point? I mean, you you are battling a sort of racial battle fatigue, even if it's at a lower kind of ambient level, and there is a desperate attempt to make sure that you are not letting that have too much of an effect on your journalism. I, mean, I think that that is something that I'm always conscious of. Yeah, I think I'm I'm conscious of that too because you know Charles is an opinion columnist. I'm someone who's who's trying very much to get both sides of view um, and trying to 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 not be a columnist. I want I want to be able to learn and tell and tell both sides of the story. And and I think that because of that, um, I have to check myself and say, you know, did this seep into me too much? Do I need to think about this more deeply? Am I am I taking this offensiveness too too personally? But I think that at the same time, I think it informs my journalism. Like I got really, really upset when Philando Castile died. Um, not so, I mean, the, the you know, the case is still ongoing, but there was that little girl in the back seat that was crying saying, you know, mom is going to, or not crying actually, not crying at all and saying, you know, mom is going to be okay. And I, that bothered me for, I think it still bothers me today as I sit here and I ended up writing a front page story about it. And I felt, I felt good about myself because I could have, I could have dealt with that, those emotions in so many different ways. And I just, I just said, I really need to write this story. I really want to write this story. And my editors let me write this story, but 
I think that I just try to channel it in that way. That if Don, you know, I, I had a question um, a few weeks ago. Well, Donald Trump seems to be ignoring black people. Is that really the case? And me and Jonathan Martin ended up writing this story saying, no, he has not been to a single black event in the black community. So I think that that has been the way I've been able to kind of channel what I'm feeling. I want to thank you both for spending this time with me, Yamish and Charles. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks thank for you. Having me. That's it for this episode of The Run-Up. We'll see you back here on Friday. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our legal counsel. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Our chief strategist is Carolyn Ryan. Our war room is run by Diantha Parker, Pedro Rosado, and Vanessa Romo. Every campaign has a theme song. Ours is by Jim Brumberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking to buy your dream car? Shop the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Carvana offers hassle-free financing that's completely transparent. All you have to do is answer a few questions, and you could get pre-qualified in just two minutes. Then, see your real terms and actual monthly payments as you scroll through Carvana's huge inventory of cars. The numbers you see are personalized just for you. It's that easy to find the right car for the right price, as it should be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to finance your dream car the convenient way.